Good morning, and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is Adam Levin. Adam Levin's debut novel, The Instructions, published in 2010, arrived with a lot of buzz. An inventive, experimental book of over a thousand pages, its protagonist was Gurian ben Judah Maccabee, a 10-year-old genius from Chicago who may or may not be the Messiah. Levin's stories have appeared in Tin House, McSweeney's, and Esquire, and he was the winner of the New York Public Library's Young Lions Award and the Joyce Carol Oates Fiction Prize, among others. He lives in Chicago, where he teaches creative writing at the School of the Art Institute, and he is here today to talk about his new short story collection, Hot Pink. Welcome to Between the Covers, Adam Levin. Hi, David. It's good to have you here. Thanks, man. So from what I've read, the instructions took you quite a long time, nearly a, a decade. And yeah. I was curious uh, if you were working on Hot Pink interspersed through that period of time, or has that mostly been a burst of energy since you finished the instructions? No, Hot Pink was sort of, it was before, during, and after. Um, I take a, a lot, like uh, I think three or four of the stories were, were finished, are mostly finished before. Um, I was I was really working on the instructions in earnest, and then... I worked on a couple during and uh, and yeah, a couple after. <laughs> so it was uh, yeah, the, the 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 breaks while I was writing the instructions were sort of few and far between those. So, so did you see any uh, cross fertilization going on when you're writing the novel thematically mm-hmm. with some of the things that you ended up finding interest in when you put together the story collection? Um, I mean, I don't know if it's cross fertilization because I think a lot of the times when I was working on the stories, I was uh, I was thinking about different things that was that was why I wanted to work on the stories was um I didn't want to keep writing about this this boy and this voice like I, I needed a little break uh but I mean the the there's some commonalities I mean there's a lot of like you know romantic love stuff and there's a lot of violence um and there's comedy you know so so I mean the, the, those those things are you know uh happening in, in both books but but I don't think like thematically like any 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 more specific than that I, well, I shouldn't say that. I mean, there's also a lot of stuff about friendship in both of them. So I think that's a little specific. One of the things that jumped out for me as a mm-hmm. as a commonality within the collection and also with mm-hmm. the instructions was um, both with Gurion and, and the instructions and here in Hot Pink, you have a lot of characters that are unusually smart, mm-hmm. but at the same time, their braininess seems to almost be their downfall. Like they're playing out a, a flawed logic. Was yeah. that was that something you were going for? Or did you find that you found that you had that it mm-hmm. afterwards and realized that mm-hmm. it was something you were interested? Yeah, in? Yeah, no, I wouldn't say it wasn't something I was going for directly. I think I think that a lot of times I'm trying to write about characters who are not conventionally thought of as being particularly intelligent, right? So like you have some guy who's like a high school dropout who is like studying mixed martial arts or something in parks cars for a living. And I think that, um, you know, there, there are a lot, of, and I don't know if there's a lot, but there are probably just as many smart dudes doing that as there are, um, you know, in PhD programs. And I think that they basically, they're going to lack some knowledge um, that the PhD program folks have, and they're also going to have some other kinds of knowledge. But I think that generally, like, um, I like smart people of all stripes, you know, and uh, and I, I think I, I, you know, I want my narrators in most cases, um, very maybe there's one or two exceptions, but to be you know likable, to be um, relatable, and, and um, like to get, uh, I, I want them to be folks that uh, that a reader would kind of want to hang out with, maybe, and I think that when they're smarter, that that that's going to work better. So. Um, yeah, so it wasn't, uh, I have to make these guys smart. It was more like I have to make them, uh, you know, able to articulate stuff that we don't stereotypically or normally assume 
these kind of folks would be able to. So. I, when I was reading Hot Pink, I also wondered if if at any point you'd taken a class in symbolic logic and mm -hmm. in philosophy, because yeah. there are moments in the narrative which often are really funny moments mm -hmm. when you pause or the character pauses to yeah. play out a, a whole bunch of logical possibilities to yeah. their endpoint, almost in this sort of obsessive, uh, autistic reverie of, of <laughs> yeah. sorts. Yeah. But um, And you can yeah. see maybe how their logic is flawed, though it mm -hmm. has an internal coherency right. to it. Right. And I mean, one of the examples is they're, I think in one of the stories you're mm. pondering, the characters are pondering about uh, why there are balloons on a on a dump truck. Right, right. Uh, is yeah. that something? That's was something that a logical I'm, I'm thing? Into. I mean, well, I, I definitely took a symbolic logic class, just this one in college, and I really oh, you liked did. it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I enjoyed it too. Um, I forgot all the names of the proofs and everything, but it was it was a fun class, and I think I, I think I did okay in it. Um, <clears throat> but I think that um, but yeah, like the the characters doing that. Uh, I, I just, I enjoy, I mean, I don't know, I enjoy reading stuff like that. And I think that it's, uh, and, and what you're saying is, is pretty on the money. It's, it's, it's fun for me. And I think a lot of way in a lot of ways, all of like really like, like fiction that I like does this like in a, in a larger way where, um, you take a flawed premise and like follow it to its logical extreme. And, um, you know, fiction's all about sort of leaving out large parts of the world in a lot of ways and, and, um, you know, isolating maybe some ideals or something. And, um, and that's why most fiction ends sadly, because that's, that it has to, you know, collapse. Um, I don't know. So, so the characters do it a little bit more actively, I think in my work than, than, in, than in some others, but I think a lot of fiction kind of does that. Like, I and I think that when you, uh, are watching the character go through this methodology, I actually think it adds to the likability and the charm of the story. Oh, like the, one of the first things you were talking about wanting to achieve with your mm -hmm. characters. Yeah, appreciate that. Uh, well, another another uh, interesting part of Hot Pink is a lot of the characters seem to be uh, eccentric, misfit-type characters. Mm -hmm. We have the the father in the opening story who mm -hmm. wants to invent this doll that's going to help cure anorexia. Right. We have uh, a story of dirty old men mm -hmm. who are thinking back on their lives. We have the butane-huffing teenagers. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then we have my, my favorite character is the... Uh, legless lesbian genius yeah. who's a really great but unreliable mm -hmm. narrator mm -hmm. and i i'd read that you used to be in social work before yeah, yeah. and i was curious as i was reading the collection if mm -hmm. you were if you gravitated more to mm -hmm. uh i don't know if i would say characters on the margin but mm -hmm. unusual characters mm -hmm. you were saying for instance that you you want to write smart people who aren't mm -hmm. the typical smart people right, right. is that it all come from your background in social work do you think no, some of your interests well actually i think there's a connection but i think it's actually a, a bit reversed i think i've always been interested in people like that and that's maybe one of the reasons i you went into social work to sure. begin with those i always was um sort of fascinated by outsiders and, and you know um tended to i don't know befriend them and, and maybe uh, generally trust them a bit more than than non outsiders you know like uh, yeah that makes sense yeah so so yeah yeah and then uh, some of your uh, use of psychology mm -hmm. around I think it was Skinner yeah in yeah. in hot pink mm -hmm. uh, I wondered if that went back to some that, of the social that certainly work. does I mean I um with the, the story you mentioned about uh, the Susan Falls story about the legless lesbian girl I was we learned about this self-perception theory that was from, that was back in college actually and well it always it always was fascinating to me, but that's not Skinner. And then, and then the uh, Skinner stuff, like really late, like my last um, trimester in, in when I was getting a master's in social work, I took this, this uh, behaviorism class, and uh, it was really convincing. It was, it, was, um, 
and 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 it actually painted um, sort of radical behaviorism in this way where I was like, this is this is actually quite pretty and like sort of um, honors, uh, you know. Uh, and not to get cheesy, but like like the the existence of like a soul in a weird way that that these other theories don't by by trying to describe um, the w- everything else tries to describe these sort of invisible invisible structures you know um, you know everyone knows the you know the Freudian stuff but not just the Freudian stuff like you know id super ego and ego but um, even with like cognitive uh, behavioral theory like it's it's you know, you have schema and you have automatic thoughts and you have all these things that, are, that and, and it's just so, it's it's sort of dehumanizing. Whereas in behaviorism, it's claims, you know, we should just basically study what we can observe. And then, you know, you kind of leave the rest in, a, in the black box that it that it's just going to be in. <laughs> and uh, I, I like that. I, I don't know. You could almost imagine that as a style of writing too, mm-hmm. just to yeah. write what you observe and right. and allow the, the other stuff to be in, implicit in the background. Yeah, well, I've, I mean, I've thought about that a lot. Like, and when, when I write, I really do try to you know, I try to have characters, I don't, I don't much believe in any kind of, um, you know, active unconscious. So it's like, I try to have characters, um, all be motivated by things that a reader can see and be motivated by things they're aware of. Cause I really think that, um, people walk around knowing why they're motivated. I don't, I don't think they, they do things because, um, something happened to them that they forgot about. You know, I, th- I think it's, they, they want something and they go after it and, and, uh, and, you know, different things in their environment trigger them at different moments to go after those things, you know, but, uh, but it's not like, you know, there's a childhood trauma, it gets washed out because it's too traumatic, and therefore you go become a serial killer. Like, I don't, I don't, I really don't believe people work like that. Um, In case you just tuned in, we're talking to Adam Levin, the author of the short story collection, Hot Pink. Well, Adam, let's let's have you read uh, a short selection sure. from the collection so that people can hear some of the prose. Uh, if you want to introduce it, that'd be, that'd be great. Sure. I'm, I'm just going to read from uh, the beginning of this story. Uh, it's called Finch. The narrator's, um, he's a 12-year-old boy in, in Chicago and uh, vaguely somewhere between, you know, 1990 and now. Um, the 53rd day in a row we hung out. Me and Franco got all these grilled cheese sandwiches at Theo's Bacon Burger Dog from Jin Woo Kim, who people call Gino because we're not in Korea or are in Chicago or people are lazy or two of those reasons. Gino's dad's son is the owner of Theo's, and summer afternoons he leaves Gino alone there. We went in at three when the place was the deadest, and Franco said we wanted a grilled cheese sandwich. Right as soon as Gino started making them, though, Franco told him on second thought to make that three sandwiches. So Gino started making a third one, too. Except then what Franco said was what he'd meant was three apiece, and Gino stopped moving. He was over by the fryer, facing away from us, his hand on the scoop dug into the butter tub. What, Franco told him. Gino got back to work, grabbed bread and cheese from the rack on the counter. For to go, Franco said. He lit up a cigarette. I passed him an ashtray. A bunch were stacked up on the garbage cans behind us. Thanks, yo, he said. Hey, check this ashtray. Gino's dad stole. That was probably true. All the ashtrays at Theo's were Burger King ashtrays. The chintzy aluminum kind with crimped edges. And it's not like I was really that tight with Gino. But we sometimes hung out when no one else was available. And I used to have some classes with him up till last year, when we started the 7th and they tracked me into Gifted. So I didn't want to stand there and trash talk his dad. But you can't ignore Franco, so I had to do something. So I made a lippy face with my mouth and I shrugged. 
Franco shrugged back. Gino kept cooking. When the sandwiches were finished, he wax paper wrapped them, then stacked them in a bag and brought the bag to the register. He said, 1350. Nah, said Franco. We don't have to pay today. You do, Gino said. Franco took the bag. Today it's on the house, he said. It's not, said Gino. Pay me. Come on. But what could he do? Franco was 16 and Gino was my age. Plus Franco was big. Not tall, but big. And not big like me, but like muscled in a way I bet girls probably talked about. Almost like a man. His mustache, his mustache wrapped around his chin and wasn't wispy. He drummed his shaved skull a few times with his fingers, which looked like, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. Then took a frosted cookie from the cookie tree display and crushed it in his hand inside of the wrapper. He undid the wrapper and dumped out the crumbs, grabbed another cookie, and told Gino what. Fine, Gino said. There were tears in his eyes. We were ripping him off in his own dad's joint. He gave me this look. Franco flipped me the cookie. I stuck it in my pocket, mouthing the words, I'll pay you back soon. I don't know if Gino saw, but I meant what I mouthed. And the story, Finch, was an important one for you and your career, wasn't it? It was the first one I published, yeah. Yeah. yeah so. I know you get peppered with a lot of questions about how do you come up with these ideas? Where did this all come from? And I, and I noticed that your response is that you really are working on the sentence level. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but that there are actually a couple stories in Hot Pink where mm-hmm. the idea came first, mm-hmm. and then you fleshed out the idea. Yep. Which, which ones were those? Um, well, there's, there's Frank and Wittgenstein, which um, there's a it's sort of like high concept type story where the, there's a doll that vomits that... Um, that, that there's uh, and originally I was just I, I just had this idea it was like I would like to write about a doll that throws up and I don't know what it means and I, I kind of I wrote this like product description like a catalog description almost and uh, it wasn't very fun as you can imagine I mean it was like a description of a vomiting doll um, there was there was not much emotion to it and and I still liked the idea and I didn't think that was good enough for it so um, I started thinking about you know who invented the doll. And then I started thinking about who would tell about who invented the doll. And, and it became this sort of larger story about a family and um, a son who's sort of coming out of the closet. And uh, yeah, so there's, so there's that one. And then there's another story called uh, How to Play the Guy, which, um, which was based on this, uh, this game that I don't think anyone really played. But, um, but a friend of mine, a couple friends of mine insisted that there was a game that people played where they would go to this suburban mall and in suburban Chicago, and uh, you would you would walk around the mall, you know, with a girl, and um, and you'd see an oncoming dude like just walking toward you, and you'd point at him, and you'd go, "Is that the guy?" <laughs> and like you know, just just you know, walk around scaring people that way. And I thought about you know how that game could maybe be a little bit enhanced, and um, and how um, w- what the kind of people who would play it would actually make of it, like because I tend to think. Um, you know, people do things and think that they're they're actually like righteous in doing what they do. You know, like a lot a lot of times. And I was like, how would you make this like a, a morally <laughs> sound thing to do, or convince yourself that it were? And and uh, so I tried to write that, and that that one also. I I think I originally I really wanted to write um, I really wanted to write a story in the second person imperative that stayed in the second person imperative. So it does all those things. So, but those were kind of the only two that were like that. So. Well, how to play the guy uh, reminds me of the comment you made at the beginning about how a lot of your stories deal with friendship. And I, I think mm-hmm. that is one way in which the hot pink collection stands out to mm-hmm. me. 
we often see stories about love relationships and also parental relationships. Mm-hmm. And this one really goes into mm-hmm. buddies yeah, and the yeah. crazy logic and, and sort of ecosystem of, of, of friendship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and yeah. is that something that you, again, that you mm-hmm. found yourself doing? Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to say unconsciously because yeah. <laughs> yeah. of what we were discussing yeah. earlier, but yeah. did you find that you only realized that in retrospect that that was something you were interested in? No, I mean, I think, I, th- I think that, well, I mean, it depends what, what you mean, because, you know, the, the stories, like, you know, they were written over like 13 years. So there was, there was somewhere where I was writing, when I was writing the instructions and I was in the middle of it. And, um, and actually a friend of mine had read Finch and he was like, I like this story because it's about, you know, these two friends. And, um, and and I was writing the instructions, and I was writing a lot about friendship. I mean, that was that that book is like really heavily about you know sort of loyalty and friendship and what all that stuff means. And I think uh, it wasn't so much that it was it was unconsciously motivated or like or anything like that. Is that I just have always thought about that stuff like my whole life. That's that's a you know how you behave towards your friends, like what your you know duties are as a friend, you know as a family member, all all that stuff. But I guess like you said, like a lot of the other types of stories. Um, they're, 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 they're covered. It's like, you know, um, it's not like I don't want to read a love story or a story about some relationship with someone's parents, but it's, it's a little bit less interesting because that stuff is more, um, circumscribed. It's more, um, th- th- those are roles that, that sort of your culture tells you what, what they mean in a much more clear way than, than it tells you what a friend, what friendship means. And, uh, I think it's just, it's, it's more open to be thought about. And I guess I always have, since I was a little kid, thought about that stuff a lot. So. In case you just tuned in, we're talking to Adam Levin, the author of the short story collection, Hot Pink. Once I, I took a writing workshop from the, the novelist, Steve Almond, mm-hmm. and he said, at the end of this workshop, mm-hmm. I want you to have my have a little version of me sitting on, on your shoulder, and mm-hmm. I want you to hear my voice of this various advice that I've given <laughs> you when you're writing. Yeah. And you Uh-oh. actually <laughs> you actually have a... Uh, a parrot that sits on your shoulder sometimes <laughs> when you write. Sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about your parrot? Uh, he's a he's a good he's a good guy. He's a he's a Quaker parrot, and he's um he's uh I never really had a pet, you know, and and I, and I just owing to some a bunch of silly circumstances, I became kind of obsessed with with, with little birds, and uh, and then I eventually wanted a parrot, which was sort of you know they're really loud. Like I'm 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 deaf to certain tones now. Like. Um, <laughs> Thankfully, I think it's I think it's done. I think like the the tones to which I'll be deaf or are finished. They're not going to expand. I think he just killed those, you know, that area of the eardrum. But uh, I don't know. I just I um I got him. At, at, uh, they have these you know bird shows. It sounds bad. It sounds like a dog show, but they're it's basically um, breeders come together and you know and you can meet these birds and uh, they're hand raised and I don't know. And and he's uh, the Quakers are a really cool species because they. Um, they live wild. They're they're from the Andes, and and but they live wild in uh, Chicago and in, in Brooklyn. And I bet I bet there's some out here. It's it's they're really adaptive. They build these very serious nests. And I mean, just you figure, even coming from the Andes to be able to survive um, a Chicago winter. I mean, we're talking with no evolution. We're talking like birds that like escaped a pet store and figured out how to live through you know 60 below, and um, it's pretty impressive. So they're 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 smart, and they're also um, they're sort of just born like cuddly like it's weird there's a couple parrot species that like like being touched and held and this is one of them so he's nice and he sits on my shoulder and if i if i make noise i sometimes kind of 
um, you know, in a, in a very autistic seeming way, I would guess, um, sort of read my sentences out loud to myself under my breath and he mimics that. And so now he knows how to, he whispers. Um, and, That's great. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so. do, you, do you have any um, teacher's voices that mm. you hear, um, you know, yeah. echoing for you as you're, as you're looking at your own work and working so. on it? Yeah, I mean, they're sort of like, they've kind of all unified into one sort of like, no, <laughs> you know, but, uh, but, um, I mean, I think I always like, even before I had writing teachers, I sort of would have these writers who, you know, I was constantly thinking, what would they think of this? And, you know, it would be like, um, I think Salinger and, um, uh, David Foster Wallace and George Saunders. And then George Saunders actually became one of my teachers and he was another one. And, uh, you know, that, that, uh, so I definitely like think, you know, there there are things that, that Saunders, a lot of things Saunders said to me when I was when I was his student that um, I think made me better faster, and and I think of those things a lot when I'm working. If I get stuck somewhere, I'm, I'm sort of like, well, you know, what would what, what would George's angle be on this? You know, um, and anyone yeah. that comes to mind at the moment, uh, anyone. any little um, nugget that that often reoccurs for you from him? There's, there's a thing where, there's one thing he told me that was really, I think, just awesome, that, that like really stuck with me more than anything. Um, and it was, and it was um, that there's a certain point, like, cause I'll go into some sort of weird spaces with some of my stories and like, and, and I don't ever want them to alienate a reader. Like I really, I really do want to be talking to a reader and feel like I have, there's an intimate thing going on, but I want to push that to as weird a place as it can go. And I think he, he told me at one point that there's some moments where just like, if you, if you need them, if you're like, this is, this is essential, but it's going to be a bit alienating. There's a way to kind of turn to the reader and acknowledge they're being alienating. Um, and, and then, then the reader's with you still. So it's like, and I think that was like really, that was really sound advice. It's like, and I find it like, I find myself like giving it to my own students sometimes where it's, it's like. Um, you know, the, the one, the, the big example would be like in, in the story of Frank and Wittgenstein, things get really weird. Um, and the narrator just sort of just says, you know, like, I know this seems like a cartoon, you know, it seemed that way to me too, <laughs> you know, that's that sort of sure. thing. And, and, um, and I feel like that, like it, it, because you don't want the reader thinking you're trying to, you know, be like intellectually superior to them, or I, I, I don't at least like, I want to just engage them as the most intelligent beings as they could possibly be and, and not, not condescend to them. So you gotta be, you know, you gotta be inviting to do that, I think. And, and yeah. And, and, and if you get a little bit uninviting for a second, they'll tolerate it, but then you gotta, you know, make up for it. So I think that's, that's one thing that really comes to mind a lot. In case you just tuned in, you're listening to Between the Covers and we're talking today with Adam Levin about his short story collection, Hot Pink. Did you already always know, Adam, that you wanted to do more innovative, out-of-the-box uh, fiction, and that's why you sought out George Saunders? Or was it through being with him that then you realized that's the type of writing you wanted to do? No, I, I think that before I worked with George, my work was actually maybe a little bit weirder. Um, but, but again, it's like, you know, I, I generally, like, when I got to Syracuse, when I, when I got to, to school to study with him, I was... Uh, I had these, this sort of dichotomy in my head that I think a lot of young writers have where it's like there's experimental fiction and there's realist fiction. And this is like a silly dichotomy I came to. But like, like pretty quick once I got to school, it's like it's not um, – that's not real. And it's, it's, it's actually like a uh, – just kind of a way to signify like what gang you're in or something. And, um, and I just I, – I came to decide that, you know, whatever's going to be moving is what, what I want to do. And I think that in terms of like doing out-of-the-box style stuff or like – something that's formally, you know, innovative or different, that's not a primary concern for me. Like, I'm happy to do that stuff. But, like, 
um, I really, I want to affect people. Like I want, I want people to, you know, read my stuff and have it stick with them and, and have them feel like when they finished it, they finished it for a reason. Like it was worth it. It got better and better as it went forward. Um, yeah, I, th- I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I when I was when I was a kid, like I read a lot of Kurt Vonnegut. Like that was that was what I read, you know, most. And um, and later Salinger. And I think that with with both of them, like they they get you to think sort of like, um, in, in uh, you know, metafictionally, like really quickly, especially if you read them when you're young. And so my sort of I end up sort of trying to actually dull out that that part of myself because like my brain automatically goes to like this will be my metafictional solution to this problem I'm having and that's usually a cop out for me so I think yeah I, I don't remember if it was the Chicago Tribune but mm. it was, I think it was a Chicago paper that mm. asked you what in mm. five of your favorite books were and mm. and you mentioned Operation Shylock by, oh, yeah. by Philip Roth yeah. and I I loved that you mentioned that particular book yeah. because it feels underappreciated totally, in, his, totally. in his work but also yeah. you mentioned which I think speaks to what you just said mm. that it's a meta book, but it's like totally accessible as a yep. as a narrative. Absolutely. So you've got this combination right. of sort of formal experimentation, but you're not alienating the reader at right. all. Right. It's like yeah, it's really it's using that stuff, and I mean I think that's what the best what the best formal experimentation does is it it doesn't feel experimenty. You know, it feels like this writer has figured out a way to tell a story differently that is at, and, then, and then executes it well uh, executes it well and i think um roth is like pretty much like always on pace with that you know like he's, he's a few flubs but but not many um and i mean because he can get really formally weird that guy like i mean like the um great american novel you ever, you ever read yeah, I've re- yeah i've, I mean, I've read like, them all actually yeah, i mean it's like that's a weird book yeah. man like if you think like it's it's uh and, and uh he just uh he's he's sort of a great model for that and i actually think that you know, his reputation as being hard to read, uh, despite that, David Foster Wallace is, like, actually really accessible. Like, I think some of the stories are, are kind of, they'll throw a wall up for you. But, you know, you take, like, Infinite Jest, and there's this really just nice narrative in there that if you can sort of tolerate not being told it linearly, it's it's like, wow, this is this is doing all the stuff that, that I want fiction to do, you know? Um, yeah. in, in the instructions, you, you've talked about how the... Um, you, your use of how you envision the reader reading and the, the rhythm of the reading and mm-hmm. how you exploited that mm-hmm. in the sense of if people need to focus really hard on an essay, mm-hmm. then you follow it with a fight scene <laughs> and you're sort of hoping that that attention that's being spent to the essay is yeah. going to carry over to the fight scene yeah. that you want them to particularly pay attention right, to. Right. Did you use any of that same... Uh, thought process and how to put together the hot pink collection and what order to put the stories um not no it wasn't it wasn't so much that i mean like i i feel like you know with stories i don't know i i think i have different expectations for how a reader is going to handle a story than than a novel and i always think that especially with a collection like this where there's really nothing interrelated i mean there's like a couple cross references but they're just you know like ricks and steves or something but they're not if they go unnoticed i don't care like they're you know it's just like extra stuff like um these are like I really think of it as a collection of of distinct stories, and the way that I and I think most people don't even read stories in order. I think the first thing everyone does is they go and they read the shortest story, right? They look at the table of contents and they're like, "What's the shortest piece in here?" And then you know, so it's like I feel like I have less control as a writer over how they're going to do that, and I just I just try to make every story be its own thing. 
Um, and the sequence I put them in, I mean, vaguely was like, you know, I'll put like a, a really, you know, a few accessible, an accessible story first. I'll follow it with a really weird story in case someone is going to read it in order. So I don't, you know, screw their expectations too much. And, you know, it's like, I'm doing this and I'm going to do this. And, um, but I think most of them, most people don't read it in order. I mean, very few people who do. I used to do that. I used to read them in order religiously. Um, and now I just, I don't, I mean, I was just like, oh, sure. I, I like the title of this one. I'm going to look at it. So, um, yeah. Do you have a project that you're working on now? I'm working on like uh, a couple things, like, but I don't. They're 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 no good to talk about at this point. There, I mean, one of them. I'm sort of waiting for one of them to decide to be the next thing I'm going to do because I, I want to write a short novel. So, so um, in contrast to your your big yeah novel. yeah yeah, yeah. I want to write a short one. I mean, I spent like um I just did this piece for um, Playboy magazine. I did on on um casinos in Paris, and so that took me a while as the first nonfiction I wrote. So. Um, How do you like writing nonfiction? I liked it actually. Like I did at first, I was like, "Ugh, I don't want to," you know, "I don't want to do this." But but I I got into a rhythm with it, and I was like, "This is kind of interesting." And it was it was sort of like, I just because uh, because it, it's you know it was participatory, you know, and so it, it's like participatory journalism kind of thing. And so um, I was like, "I'm not really interested in myself." And then I was like, "Yeah, yeah, of course I like you know I'm like everyone else is." And so I was like, I just had to start thinking of it as though I was writing. I was trying to write like a really awesome email to like someone that I, that I liked a lot. And then, and then it became, it became this thing that was fun. Cause I like writing emails to people I like a lot. Um, <laughs> you know, so. Yeah. Well, it was great having you on between the covers today, Adam. Thanks man. It was great being here. So we were talking today with Adam Levin, the author of the short story collection, Hot Pink. This has been Between the Covers and I'm David Naiman, your host.